in such a time as this, when so many of us are worried about the coronavirus, we find ourselves all too susceptible to another bug, that of panic. We hear about the increasing number of cases throughout the United States. We implement increasing precautions at schools, workplaces, even at church, like today, to flatten the spread of the disease. We even decided to cancel in-person worship. And while these precautions are necessary and perhaps overdue, they can come with a shadow impulse, a shadow, a shadow side, with the impulse to hoard all we can and lock ourselves away for a more peaceful time. We find ourselves catching a wave of hysteria. And with that wave, the reptilian brain in us takes over. That's the part of us that has no capacity at all for reason or for care for our neighbor. That has one message, self-preservation at all costs. Take all you can, let your neighbor fend for herself. In being susceptible to such hysteria, such panic, we fail to be both good neighbors and good stewards of God's gifts. Our gospel reading for today also takes place during a time when people were on the verge of panic. The reading skips over Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem because of liturgical considerations. After all, Palm Sunday is going to be on April 5th. Pray hard that we will return to in-person worship by that time. But we skip over a lot more, too. It's a shame we skip over so much, but in my humble opinion, we can't make the Sunday service do everything. So I'll sum up here. Jesus enters the city in triumph, with palm branches waving and hosannas sounding. He leaves that evening going out to Bethany, a town about two miles outside of Jerusalem. The next day, after returning, he expels the money, changer, money changers from the temple, striking not just fear, but panic into the hearts of the religious leaders. They redouble their efforts to have him killed. The next day, when Jesus returns, the religious leaders try to trap him by asking, by what authority do you do these things? To which Jesus gives a wonderfully rabbinic answer, by what authority did John the Baptist do what he did? Fearful of the crowd's wrath and of Jesus' rebuke, they say, we don't know. Jesus responds, well, too bad. I'm not going to tell you the source of my authority either. So you see, it's this context of increasing tension, increasing fear, Hatred, near panic, that we hear Jesus' parable and the question about taxes. It's no secret that Jesus' greatest conflicts were with religious leaders. And it's no surprise. They're variously described in Mark as the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Herodians, which may have been a particular sect of Hellenistic Jews or a pure political party. It doesn't matter. They're all depicted as opposing Jesus. And Jesus takes his cue from the Jewish prophetic tradition in telling this parable, namely from Isaiah 5 and the image of the vineyard. In Isaiah 5, God likens 
God's people to a carefully planted and tended vineyard. Despite God's careful management of the vineyard, though, it yields a rotten harvest. In the, this parable is slightly different than the one in Isaiah 5. Because the problem isn't with the vineyard itself. The problem isn't with the people themselves. The problem is with those who are leasing the vineyard. The problem is with the leaders. In the vineyard, those who are leasing seem to think they have the right to own. And to defend that imaginary of right, they obstruct any attempt by the owner to reach them with his due. In other words, they're fearful. They're fearful of the owner. They're fearful of anyone the owner sends. They're even fearful of the son whom they kill. The religious leaders easily connect the dots. It's a, it's a, it's a classic, it's a great parable in that it allows for people to connect the dots and see themselves in the story. And they realize that Jesus is likening them to the bad tenants in the vineyard of Israel. In another sense, Jesus takes a note from Ezekiel 34, which lambasts the leaders of Israel for their predatory behavior, the bad shepherds. Notice how they react. This, they don't take a moment to say, hmm, maybe I am like that. Maybe, maybe I really do need to uh, change how I, how I lead and, and how I shepherd the people and all of that. They don't do that. They react in fear, panic. Jesus has told the truth about them, that they abuse God's people Israel and mistreat God's servants, and now they want to catch Jesus. They want to get the crowd to see who they think he really is, remove this threat. you got to wonder whose bright idea it was to pose the question about taxes. I mean, really? Like they didn't realize that Jesus would call them out for even possessing one of those Roman coins? It had the image of the emperor on, on it. In Jewish law, that is already a violation of the first commandment. It's, while they might have thought it was a brilliant trap, it's little more, really, deep down, than a harebrained reactionary scheme con concocted by a bunch of frightened little boys to turn the crowd against Jesus really is. And of course it doesn't work. It's Caesar's coin with his image. What's it worth compared with God has imprinted God's image upon? All of this could have been a learning moment for these religious leaders. It really could have been. And indeed, next week we'll hear about such a learning moment. One of the scribes has that very moment of self-reflection and oh, you're right. But, sadly, that isn't the case for the majority. This Jesus is a threat. He has to be dealt with. They've succumbed to their fear. They haven't taken the opportunity to learn. Perhaps it is in times like that and in times like these when the atmosphere is tense with fear where people are on the verge of panic, that we are given the best opportunities for learning. Not just for learning about how we might act, like the tenants sometimes, in anxious times, but also for learning about what God's kingdom is really about. God's kingdom is really about agape love 
about mercy, about a grace and a giving beyond words. We heard about that mercy last week when we talked about Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus just asks Jesus for mercy. Lord, let me see again. Having given us mercy beyond words, Jesus invites us to model that mercy to others. To remember that we are made in God's image and are therefore infinitely precious to God. Jesus gave himself for us. We can therefore give ourselves for him and for our neighbor. Instead of catching fear, Jesus makes it possible for us to catch love. As the first letter of John 4, 18 through 19 reads, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not reached perfection in love. We love because he first loved us. God's love in Christ makes our love possible. God's love overcomes fear, enlightens darkness, and even conquers death. That's what we can cling to, the love of God in Christ, even in times like these, especially in times like these. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus, you know that we live in an especially anxious time. Bring healing to those who suffer from the coronavirus and strength for their families. Give all healthcare workers both courage and caution, both strength and resolve as we go through the days and weeks ahead. Free us all, cure us of the infection of fear. Replace it with your love, the medicine which casts out all fear and which enables us to love you and others. Amen.